Let's begin with a word of prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the goodness that you are. You are good. You are a good Father who loves your children unconditionally. And so, Lord, this morning we pour out our praise to you. And we lift up our very selves and we say, take it all. Lord, we say that, we just sung that together. And we mean it. And so we give them over to you. I pray in the minutes before us, Lord, that you uh, continue to do a work in our hearts. We feel your spirit in this place and we know that you are here with us. And Lord, continue that work, mind, body, and soul throughout all of us, Lord. We give it all over. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, this morning, we are uh, continuing the series uh, on sanctuary, and uh, we're also continuing uh, by looking at the bookends of Scripture. We're, we're in Genesis, and we're in Revelation, uh, and there's good reason for this. I, I think these two bookends give us uh, what life should be. There is what is in life, and there is what uh, should be, right? And... Uh, well, God created the world, and he made it good. He made it very good, and then Genesis chapter 3 happens, right? Uh, and then most of your scriptures, uh, well, all the way through to the end, uh, to Revelation, well, it's the in-between time. It's, it's what you and I live in, right? This time right now. And then we await this other time. Uh, I'll call it the New Jerusalem. Some people call it heaven. Uh, maybe there should be a day where I, we, we talk about these things a little bit deeper, uh, but heaven is essentially, uh, the way it's commonly understood, the fusion of heaven and earth, which, which our book of Revelation calls the new Jerusalem, which comes out of heaven, and God creates a new heavens and a new earth, is what it says, right? But we live in the in-between time. We live in the time that is and not necessarily the time of, of what should be. And yet, we get these flashes. Even in my own life, and I'm guessing in your life too, you get flashes of the what should be. Those moments where you, you feel like things are indeed right. Where you're centered within yourself. Where the world around you just rings true where something feels like you are touching upon something bigger than yourself, something that indeed is eternal. This is what we're all yearning for and longing for, and we want these moments to linger and to last, and they sometimes last longer than others. Hopefully you know what I'm talking about. Hopefully you're not thinking I'm a crazy person right now. <laughs> Hopefully you've had these experiences where you just feel a sense that all is right in the world. Or maybe to put it better, that God is present. This is what sanctuary is. I think at its core, uh, it is God's presence in the here and in the now. In the here and the now. We talked last week, too, and, and, and I mentioned uh, that sanctuary also is this idea of, uh, of a place of rest or refuge, right? It's, it's a place of rest or refuge. 
the key point I want to make today, and, and I'll say it's, it's something bigger than just today for me. It's something that has been building uh, in me and, and in us, I think, for years. I think it's something that's been going on for a while, and I hope it continues into the future. It's this. It's that when Jesus calls us into the kingdom of God, I firmly believe he is calling us into the Eden ideal that sits at the front of your Bible and the New Jerusalem ideal that sits at the back of your Bible. This is the life he's calling us into. But he's calling us into it not then. He's calling us into it in the here and the now. We must embody this as individuals and as a church. We, South Run Baptist Church, are to be New Jerusalem people in the here and the now. My personal vision for what we could be together is that right here, right outside of Washington, D.C., of all places, we provide a place for New Jerusalem living. If we were to do this, what would change? What would be different about your life if we actually put this kind of thing into practice? If we took the, the, the then, what we're all hoping for someday, and we put it into practice in the here and the now, like as we walk out these doors, what would change? How would we run our lives? How would we run our church? What would be different? I'm, stand, I'm, I'm spending an extended period of time uh, over the coming weeks on sanctuary because I truly believe that if we dig into and live out this value of sanctuary, something that we say as a church that we value, it's one of just five things that we value, I actually think that we can crack the door open to heaven and begin to peer inside as to what it should look like again, here and now, not waiting for the time to come. And you might think me a utopian thinker, and you know what? Go ahead and call me that. That's fine. I'm just trying to give you a vision of what Jesus also was calling that first century church into as well. Last week I mentioned, we talked about sanctuary as a place where God is present and where God is felt. We also talked about sanctuary as a place of rest and refuge, a place that is safe. And hopefully, South Run Baptist Church is a place where you feel safe. But there is this problem with this idea of rest and, and, a, and sanctuary being connected to rest. And, and I mentioned it last week, and, and I want to dig into it a little further this week. And it goes like this. In Genesis 2.15, our Old Testament passage for today, we're told that in Eden, when all is perfect and the ideal is in place, Adam and Eve are not eating bonbons, as I said last week, right? No, 
it reads that the Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And there you have it, the problem I want to set up for you today. If you thought or think that the New Jerusalem or, or the New Jerusalem living is somehow like not work or, or not doing something, then you've, well, you're mistaken. That's just all there is to it, right? Because I think the, the Eden ideal on the one end of your Bible is going to foreshadow and be a whole lot like the New Jerusalem ideal on the other end of your Bible. And so in the here and the now, when we think about what it means to live that, it will require a certain amount of working and, and tilling. Because work is part of the garden. And I believe it will be part of the New Jerusalem. And I believe that our work right here and right now in this in-between time can actually point to the kinds of work we can anticipate in the life to come. I read a book this last week uh, that I want to recommend to you. It was actually very good. Uh, it's by a guy named John Mark Comer, and it's simply titled Garden City. He's a pastor in Oregon. Uh, it's called Garden City, and he's talking about some of the things I'm talking about today, uh, as well as, uh, as vocation, actually, for the graduates in our room. Uh, this is a wonderful book to pick up as you think about who you are, who God call, is calling you into, what God is calling to you into as term, in terms of vocation and calling, uh, but not just uh, uh, the uh, young adults in the crowd can uh, uh, gather something from this. Uh, I think we all can. I certainly did. And in it, he talks a lot about Eden. As I said, the book is called Garden City, and he's connecting the garden in Eden to the New Jerusalem city, right? And so when he does so, he's talking about the garden, he's talking about Eden, and uh, he, uh, he basically says that in this garden utopia, what we have there is the raw materials that God says is good. And he sets, God sets it forward for us, uh, and he plants us into it, and he says, take care of it and work it, which means take these raw materials and create something beautiful out of it. Create something good out of it. He doesn't just set them there and, and then say, oh, oh yeah, just uh, kind of keep, keep up the shop for me. No, make something is what John Mark Comer uh, argues for. And I would actually completely agree that we humans, humanity, are co-creators with the Creator. The Creator of all things calls us into a work with Him where we too are creating side by side with the Creator. I have a, a lovely quote from John Mark right here, and he says this, when you think of Eden, don't think of a public park with a lawn, a playset, and a flower bed or two, where God hands Adam a lawnmower and says, keep it tidy, will ya? <laughs> Think of a violent, untamed wilderness, teeming with beauty, but no infrastructure, no roads, 
no bridges, no cities, no civilization. And God says, go make a world. Adam wasn't a landscape maintenance employee. He was an explorer, a cartographer, a gardener, a designer, an architect, a builder, an urban planner, and a city maker. I love that. I love the idea that you and I get to participate with God in the building and creating of beautiful things. And I think this has a lot to say about who we are, what we are called into, and what it means to hold a vocation in this life. Let's turn for a minute to our New Testament passage, and I'm going to do what Ben wanted to do, which is uh, make you open your Bibles, and I'm going to open mine too, because I think it's good practice. And you're going to turn to the very end of it all, the book of Revelation. We're going to be in chapter 4. And in chapter 4, while you're turning there, if you don't know, the, the book of Revelation begins with three chapters uh, which are dedicated to their letters, dedicated uh, to seven cities uh, in what is modern-day Turkey. And then chapter 4 begins, and this begins the vision of it all. And John of Patmos is caught up into the heavens, and he gets to do what I've said that I, I hope Southern Baptist Church will do, as we dig into what it means to be a sanctuary. Well, he peeks into the world of heaven. And when I say he peeks into the world of heaven, I mean he peeks into that place where God dwells perfectly. In fact, if there is something called a sanctuary in the cosmos as a whole, it is heaven, because that is where God dwells. It's the sanctuary of sanctuaries. It's the holiest place of the holiest places. And we read this. There's a throne in this place. And around the throne, verse 6 now, on each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature is like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Before we keep going here, this quick word, you might be wondering, what in the world are these creatures? <laughs> and you're not alone. Uh, if you were to look up uh, these creatures in a Bible commentary or something like that, you would probably find uh, lots of different answers as to what these are. Uh, one idea is that they actually represent uh, the whole world and all of creation. Uh, and that uh, when uh, the world is created, uh, they get, uh, it gets represented here in the living creatures uh, that you see before it. Uh, the, the living creature of the ox, uh, the living creature of the lion, the living creature of the bird, the eagle in flight, and uh, God's pinnacle of creation, which is humanity, right? Maybe, maybe that's what this is. Or maybe it's some sort of heavenly creatures that just have these appearances, and John has no other way of explaining them other than to just simply call them, uh, well, they look kind of like these things. Or he's probably referring to the book of Ezekiel, 
where Ezekiel 2 has a vision, and Ezekiel's vision looks a lot like what we find here. In some ways, it's actually not important who these creatures are. The more important thing that I want you to focus in on is what these creatures are doing. See, when we peek into the Holy of Holies, into heaven itself, what is happening? Worship is happening. Worship. All creatures that are standing before God are worshiping God. And they are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And it keeps going. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, well, the 24 elders, again, whomever they are, (laughs) the 24 elders, they fall down before him who is seated on the throne. And what do they do? Well, they also worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns down before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. And then there's this interesting tag to all this. For you did what? You created, right? You created all things. And by your will, everything that's ever been created was created and exists. That's why glory and honor and praise is due to God. This is something Adam and Eve forgot, but something that indeed will be reclaimed in the New Jerusalem. That one day, indeed, as we worship God, we will be reminded that we are here because God created all things. And so what we get in Revelation 4 is this picture of the heavens, and in it, well, it is the sanctuary of sanctuaries, and we have at its center a throne where worship is happening constantly, day and night, night and day. And so when I think of a sanctuary, if I can add one more element to the way I think about what sanctuary is, I want to add this idea of worship to it. So a sanctuary is a place where God is present. A sanctuary is a place where rest and refuge happens. And a sanctuary is a place where worship happens. This sets up for me a bit of another conundrum. Now, you may have heard, as I did growing up, that heaven, or the New Jerusalem, uh, will be an eternal praise and worship service. It it might be for some people uh, that that is exactly what's going to happen. All day long, we'll be sitting in South Run Baptist Church just praising Jesus all day long. Maybe so, but I actually think not. Uh, I tend to think not. I think that this actually shrinks down a little too much what it means to worship God. I think worship is bigger than our mere words, than our mere song. As wonderful and as good as those words and those songs are, 
I think worship happens, well, potentially at any point in your life, maybe even at all points in your life, if you're doing it right. And so we need to expand the word worship as we typically use it. It's something that needs to be expanded beyond the act of singing or talking at God, but in fact communing with God. In not only the sacred times and the sacred places, but in the ordinary times and the ordinary places. We must remove the wall between the sacred and the ordinary. Do you know what I mean by this? I think in our minds, many of us anyway, have set up this idea that there is a sacred space, maybe we'll call it this sanctuary, and then there are ordinary places, and we'll call that your workplace, or school, or wherever you go on a daily basis, maybe your home even. And you think there's the ordinary places and there's the sacred spaces. But here's the thing. I don't think this is true, for one. And two, God is redeeming it all, right? This is the goal of it all. There is no difference between sacred and ordinary spaces because God is in the act of redeeming everything, every last little bit of it, or as I said last week, every square inch, right? When God creates humanity, I believe that he creates us with a design and purpose. The design, at least part of it, is that we are beings who by our very nature worship things. We worship things. And my job is to convince you, to uh, encourage you, to uh, train you, that we are to worship the God of the universe. And that we are to do this not just when we arrive on Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. and then stop doing that at 12 12 p.m. I always mess that up. Is it 12 p.m.? Is the the p.m.? You know what I mean. Uh, And then we walk out of here and then ordinary time begins, right? And in these sacred times, that's when we worship and then, and then we get out, and then we do something else. I, w- I would say this, that, that you are worshiping something during those times. At any time, you are worshiping something, which is to simply say, you are loving something the most during those times. And whether that is the God of the universe that you are claiming to be worshiping in this moment, or maybe it's yourself, or maybe it's your job, or maybe it's your kids, or maybe you fill in the blank, right? You're worshiping something at any and all times. And our job as a church, I said it was my job, but I'm going to say it's our job as a church, that we reorient our lives on a routine basis toward worship of the Creator God toward what we see in the book of Revelation chapter 4, where those heavenly beings are laying down their crowns, laying down the most important things in their lives, and they are worshiping the God of the universe. 
I want to get practical, and I've got five minutes to do it. If we are going to be a worship-shaped people, I've got five things I think we should be doing. If we are going to be a worship-shaped people. One, we must recognize that every act can be and should be an act of praise. It's not to say that every act actually is. I, I think there are some acts that we commit that are indeed unholy and not a matter of praise at all. But they should be, and this gets back to the should and will be, they should be an act of praise. And by this I mean even your jobs, even the lowliest of jobs, even the middle management jobs, even the most important of jobs, can be an act of praise. Second thing I would say, if we are to be a worship-shaped people, is that when we work in this life, we, our work is indeed connected to our worship. I mentioned last week that the same word, the Hebrew word abad, is used for both of these. And our work, what we find in the garden, indeed is a form of worship. When we work rightly, we are worshiping at the same time. And when we work and there's a certain satisfaction in the labor itself, if you've ever gone outside and you've cut your lawn uh, and you, you kind of step back and, and you're drinking that Coke and you're just looking over the lawn and you're thinking, this looks good, right? That satisfaction, that is a form, believe it or not, I believe, of worship. Now, it's potentially a worship of self or your lawn or something else, but it could be and it should be a form of worship of the holy God who created us for good work. And when you create something of beauty, it's okay to step back and to do exactly what God did when he created the world and say, it is good. That's good. That's a beautiful thing. And so there is satisfaction, and there is peace, and there is joy and delight in the things that we do in this world, and our means to doing them. The third thing I would say, if we are worship-shaped people, is that there is satisfaction in the product of our work itself. Not just in the means of it, but in the, the, the output. What's the end of it all? And so, if you're an artisan, this becomes an easier thing to measure, right? It's, it's the thing you're creating. If you're a bread maker, that loaf of bread, if you create this thing of beauty that gives joy to other people, that gives honor and praise and glory to God too. I firmly believe this. But there's two ends, actually, to all of it. There is the product itself. And the product itself, I do think, is something tremendously important. But the other end to our work, the other end is the glory of God. And so we can do work in this life, and we can create a good product, but if we're not doing it to the glory of God, 
If it's not an act of praise, well, it takes, it takes the whole meaning out of it all. It, it takes the bottom out of it all. And it does not satisfy in the same way that I'm talking about here and now. A worship-shaped people will find satisfaction in the labor itself and in the product itself because we are doing it to the glory of God. The fourth and and final thing I would say here about being worship-shaped people is that we need to beware of idols that are vying for our worship because I believe that they are everywhere. Beware of idols that are vying for our worship. Worship in the Old Testament, if you were to do a word search here, is often, maybe most often, used with a, with a not in front of it. Do not worship other gods, right? Do not worship other gods. And if we were to translate it with what I'm trying to tell you today, which is your work and worship are this same word here, do not work for other gods, right? This is what your Old Testament might be saying to you this morning. Do not work for other gods. And we can make gods or idols out of just about anything, can't we? Popularly, we make idols out of money and power and fame, sometimes out of praise from others. We are people pleasers, sometimes out of fear, sometimes out of envy or jealousy, sometimes out of certainty. Idol, that something has to be certain, that, that we have to make sure that uh, we are doing uh, our work and labor so that uh, the, the life we've, we've carefully crafted, well, we keep it nice and tidy. And fear and certainty get mixed up together, fear and certainty. In a worship-shaped life, we do not live out of fear. We do not live out of a desire or need for certainty. Instead, we live out of faith. Dare I say it, faith, right? This trust that God, who is beyond us, is actually the one who's in control all along. And that we can trust that this God, the creator of all things, who has at his fingertips the ability to make all the food we can imagine in this world, right? And does so on literally a daily basis as those plants come up out of the ground and the trees produce buds and the fruit grows on the trees and the vegetables on the vines. God is doing this on a regular basis. He's capable of making all the abundance we can imagine. But sometimes, just sometimes, we live in these minds that get entrapped with a different sort of thinking. It's a, it's a scarcity thinking. We have your abundance mindset and your scarcity mindset. And the scarcity mindset says, well, I've got to hoard everything I can in order to make sure that I have something tomorrow too. But if we lived as worship-shaped people who live with faith in the Almighty God, creator of heaven and earth, who indeed is capable 
of an abundance of things. We would not live out of fear and out of certainty, but out of faith that this God can and does provide on a regular basis. That's what it means to be worship-shaped people, in part, of course. There's always more to be said. But what does it mean to be a worship-shaped church? Just a few things I want to say. I would want to say this. Sunday mornings, what we do here on Sunday mornings is really important because it orients us for the, re for the remainder of the week. And when we find ourselves in a sanctuary, it should, it should put us back together again. Kind of like a chiropractor, going to the chiropractor and he puts your back back together again, he pops those things back into place and sets you on your way. Or like a good therapist who uh, should put your emotions back uh, together again and, and, and kind of get you on your way. Or maybe like a good professor who gives you the things that you need to know, and he, he puts those in the right place and, and sends you on your way. And each of these analogies, body, heart, and mind, they get set right in a good sanctuary space. But ultimately, there's actually a, a layer below all of these things, and it has to do with the Spirit. If there's one thing we should be doing on Sunday morning, and to be a sanctuary, it is that we should be doing spiritual formation. In fact, I think this orients all three of the things that I just mentioned. The, the mind, the professor's job, the body, the chiropractor's job, and the heart, the therapist's job, well, we, today, in this day and age, we have so many resources to fix those things, don't we? And we have, uh, all, the internet is filled with data for us to be able to find whatever answers we need in life, right? And there, there's any amount uh, of uh, psychological theory and people out there waiting to help you to put your emotions back together again. And there's all sorts of physical healing in a way that people couldn't have imagined uh, 20 years ago, much less 100 years ago, much less 1,000 years ago, right? And yet, if underlying all of that is not some kind of spiritual formation in your life that gives purpose and meaning and wholeness to it all, then you very well might be somebody who is suffering from all kinds of struggles that no professor is going to fix, that no chiropractor is going to fix, that no therapist is going to fix. That's, that's what we come here every week on Sunday morning for, for that spiritual formation. Number two, we as a church must beware of idols as well. We must beware of idols as well. The idols that churches often look to are very similar to what individuals look to. Things like money 
and numbers. How many people have showed up on a Sunday morning? Which, by the way, I will say, uh, it feels good to be in a room with so many people in it. It does, it does feel good. Can we, can we, an amen on that one? Yeah. <laughs> the luxuries, the comparison games of what's the other church is doing, right? But fear and certainty, the ones that I mentioned about uh, with the individual uh, who is trying to live the, the worship-filled life, well, that too creeps in into church settings as well. And, and we can, as a church, live in an abundance mindset or in a scarcity mindset. And it's our, our job to figure out how are we going to navigate this. And if we are be, to be a church that is worship-centered... I believe we should live out of an abundance mindset, out of a mindset that has faith that we serve the God who is capable of all things. This is not to eschew wisdom uh, or, or, uh, or to say that we should be uh, lavish or, or to misuse the resources that we have, but it is also to say that it is okay to step out in faith from time to time and frankly, if we don't step out in faith from time to time, are we living into what it means to be followers of Christ? The third and final thing I'll say is this, and this gets back to the connection between uh, a sanctuary as a place of, of work and worship going hand in hand. And it goes like this, I believe that how we use our volunteers and our paid staff matters tremendously. How we use our volunteers, that's you all, <laughs> and our paid staff, that's me and, and Laura, uh, it matters tremendously. I believe that the church should be a model of the Eden life, of the New Jerusalem life. We should not live by the world's rules or standards or compare ourselves to the broader culture's expectations. We are to model what it means to live the New Jerusalem life. The American work ethic is both awesome in what it's capable of producing and very dangerous in what it's capable of producing. Workaholism is a real issue. And so if work trumps every other aspect of life, and if your work is just a paycheck, or if your work leads to broken homes, or broken marriages, or broken friendships, well then something's wrong with your work, right? Well, it's no different at the church here. If our working at the church is, is so much that it is driving us to madness, if there's burnout among our volunteer base, then we're doing something wrong. We are at that point no longer a sanctuary. We're no longer a safe place. We are something else. And as your pastor leading this church, into sanctuary, you need to know that it is important to me that for our volunteers that we find you 
a position in the church that will give you life and that will feel like rest. If labor in the garden was happening, and it was, then labor, I do believe, should also be happening in the church and in church settings. But I think that our labor should be life-giving, God-honoring, and a song of praise to the Creator. Will it still be work? Yes, <laughs> it will still be work. Will it sometimes not feel life-giving? Yes, it will sometimes not feel life-giving to fulfill that position that you volunteered for at the church. I don't want to give you false hope, but I also don't want you to ditch a volunteer position because you've had a bad day, a bad week, or maybe even a bad month. But should I be working at or with the church at all? The answer to that is definitely yes. But we want you doing something that God has gifted you to do. You may not have much time to give, is what you're thinking. I would point you to that widow who only has the two mites to offer, right? And she puts it in, and what does Jesus say about her? That what she's put in, the very little she has to offer, that is just as much as all of the rich people who are walking by giving lavishly, right? And so we give what we have, what we can give. And some of you, that might be a greeting position at the back uh, as, as we all walk in together. And that's what you can offer. And we want that. And we will say thank you for that. And I pray that that is God uh, honoring in your own life. For others, it means stepping into a larger role, a leadership role. We have been without a fellowship lead since I've been here. A fellowship lead. I would love somebody to step into the role of the fellowship lead. Frankly, I think it's the funnest of all positions that are available to you. You're essentially a, a, a party designer. <laughs> you're creating fun at the church, right? And, and you're creating these opportunities for us to be together and do things together. But whatever you are designed to do, whatever God has put onto your heart to do, I do want to encourage you that you should be doing something, that it should be life-giving, and that if at any point it begins to stop feeling like sanctuary and start feeling like drudgery and a burden, then you should come talk to me or to Jeff Sechrist, because that's not what we're trying to create here. We are trying to create a place that lives into the val uh, to the value of sanctuary. I'm going to stop here. Let's pray. Father in heaven, <clears throat> as we come this morning before your throne, we take those crowns, just like those 24 elders, and we set them before you. 
And Lord, those crowns represent many things. They represent our very lives, who we are as a whole. We are saying our lives, they belong to you. The most valuable things in our lives, they belong to you. And we want our very lives, every aspect of it, every minute, every uh, second that I live, to be an act of worship to you. God, that is a tall order. I know that. And uh, you're probably laughing at us right now. (laughs) But God, that is our desire. Shape us into people who are worshiping you at at every moment and in every way. And God, shape our church into a church that allows the space for worship and for work to rise up to you that we as a church united might bring you honor and glory and praise. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.